you for every single person you have gathered here today. We believe you've gathered us here for such a time as this. We believe that there is purpose for us being here. So God, help us discover that. Help us be transformed more into your likeness as we dive into your word today. In Jesus' name we ask, Father. Amen. Amen. We're in John 2, and it says this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Wow. What a story. And I don't know about you, the first time I read that, I was kind of wowed by the power of Jesus and confused by, the, by what on earth Jesus was doing, by the message of this passage. I just want to focus, uh, as we start on that verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the first of his signs. Um, and I think when we see that word first, uh, protos in the Greek, often it can mean kind of most important, not just the first sequentially. And actually, I think not only was this the first thing that happened, there's something about this story that contains the fullness of the whole of Jesus' story and what it is he's trying to do what it is he did in his earthly ministry, what it is he did in his atonement, what is it he did in his resurrection, is all kind of wrapped up in this story, I think, a little bit. Um, you might remember from when I did a sermon last time, and I'm sure you remember all the sermons that I ever do, uh, say that slightly tongue-in-cheek. Um, we have these seven signs, we have the water turning to wine, we have when Jesus heals the official's son in Capernaum, we have when Jesus heals the cripple at the pool in Bethsaida, um, the feeding of the 5,000, he walks on the water, he heals a man born blind, and his final sign, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and that seems to trigger, in the Gospel of John, people wanting to kill him. Wow. Um, each of those signs has a deep meaning. In fact, lots of those signs, Jesus performs a miracle and then says something that explains it. And yet, we don't quite have that here. Jesus does this miracle in kind of almost a sneaky, secret way. On first reading, Jesus says to his mom, I'm not going to do anything here. Stop pestering me. This isn't the time yet. Then kind of does this thing off in the side 
that no one sees and no one really knows about. And yet, it then says, Jesus did this and manifested his glory. Manifested his glory. His glory was shown. We saw his glory in this, in this story, in this account. We see it still. Why? Why is this... Uh, why does this show the glory of Jesus? Does it show that Jesus um, is someone who likes to party? Probably does to a certain degree, but I don't think that's the central part of the story. Does it show the generosity of God? Does it show the lavishness of God? Does it show the supernatural power over nature, the authority that he has over matter itself, that he can command one thing to be another? Yes, in part, but actually, I don't think this is just a display of power. This is in a profound way, Jesus retelling the story of Scripture and showing something of his character, revealing who he is. So let's go back to the start. On the third day, it starts. And that seems significant. The Gospel of John often talks about what day it is and the numbers are significant. And when we read about the third day as disciples post-resurrection, we immediately might have some thoughts about that, right? Jesus has gone through baptism preparation, baptism being symbolic of death, and on the third day he does his first miracle and manifests his glory. And he's at this wedding. Weddings typically lasted seven days. I had some friends who were at a wedding in Germany over the weekend that lasted till three in the morning, and they were exhausted, and they were horrified about how much Germans can dance and drink. So Jesus is at this seven-day wedding, and Mary comes and says, hang on, something has gone wrong. You might have heard people talk about this before. This is probably quite shameful for the bride and groom. And those of us who've been married know the political dance that planning tables at a wedding is and feeding guests is. And um, we, I'm vegetarian myself, and I'm mostly out of environmental, ecological reasons. And uh, we were really strongly going to make our uh, whole vegetarian, uh, our whole wedding an eco-wedding. And as part of this, we were going to have vegetarian food until we had a conversation with my wife's grandma, who did give most of the money for the wedding, saying, oh, you'd never force your vegetarianism on other people, would you? And we were like, ah, oh, not anymore, we won't. And uh, so we bought meat for everyone. But actually, weddings are very important social occasions, right? And here's this embarrassing, awful situation. Jesus has been invited to this wedding. Um, he's taken his disciples with him. At the moment, that's at least Peter and Andrew from the Gospel of John. So he's able to take his friends. There's probably some closeness between Jesus and the groom, although we never hear much about them. We don't even hear the name of Jesus' mother in the Gospel of John. So we don't get the name of, the, of whose wedding it was. And Jesus' response is um, not quite captured fully in the English. It's, it's, it's a turn of phrase. It's an idiom in the Greek that is, what is this between me and you? What is this between me and you? What is it to me and to you is how it literally translates into English. And the other time we see this phrase used most often is in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus comes to the demon possessed and the demons call out, what is it to me and to you? What is between us? What has, how are we related to this situation? Why are we here together? What is it between us right now? Jesus is saying to his mother, this isn't our responsibility in the first instance. Probably very aware of all the, the culture, all the, if Jesus stood up and said, I now provide wine for this wedding, 
actually, that would bring shame on the bride and the groom as he had to be their benefactor, their patron. And then he says, my hour has not yet come. This isn't my responsibility. And actually, my hour has not yet come. That phrase, my hour, occurs nine times in the Gospel of John. The first three times, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And then the next six times, he says, my hour has come. And he's always referring to his death. He talks about his death in terms of when I am now, my hour has come when I will be revealed in glory. Or my hour has come when I will now return to the Father. But Jesus is saying, this turning water into wine, it's not his duty. And it's not his mission. It's not part of his journey to the cross. But he does it anyway. Which I think shows us something of his character, doesn't it? Shows us something, I think, of his kindness. But also, what we read about in the Gospel of John is that Jesus uses opportunities like this to teach people, to reveal something of the kingdom to people. It's not his duty, it's not his mission, but he's going to teach us something about himself through this. So, he picks out six stone water jars. Now, the stone is an important detail. Stone was often used for ceremonial water jars because it didn't um, transmit impurity within the Jewish purification system. If they were made of copper or made of something else, made of porcelain, then they can get ritually dirty. And often, uh, porcelain would be smashed and copper would have to be washed extensively, ritually, to be clean again. But stone was seen as something that didn't take on impurity. And they are the, um, the jars there for, for ritual washing. Why are they there? Why are they at a wedding? Why is this important? Because this is a wedding in Cana, in Galilee. And this is a place filled with God's holy people, set apart. Actually, Jesus, in this story, is teaching us something about holiness. The story that he's telling us about the Bible, about creation, about himself, is a story about holiness. Holiness is the story. From the start, God has always um, talked to his people in terms of holiness. When he called his people out um, from Egypt, it was, you are uh, a holy, holy nation, a royal priesthood. In fact, actually, one of the main definitions we have of holiness is something set apart, something separated for a purpose. That's going to be important as we go on. But the next detail about these jars is just as revealing as what they're made of, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. This is a lot of wine, right? That is a lot, a lot of wine. Six Six big jars of 20 or 30 gallons each. Um, there's something about that, about scale, but there's also something about that, that Jesus is taking something that is about holiness, about being set apart, is part of that imagery, and actually, he's making it a big, inclusive thing. Everyone at this wedding is going to get a drink of this stuff. Something that is used for ritual holiness and set apart is now going to bring everyone together. And he says to the servants, draw it out, take it to the master. Again, there's something quite beautiful about Jesus' character in this. He's very aware of the bridegroom. He's not showy. It's not, this isn't a display of power. When it says he manifested his glory, that isn't Jesus kind of 
ripped open his T-shirt and he had a big S on his, on his top and said, right, this is it. Now this water will be turned into wine and everyone will know how amazing we are. Jesus' glory, his goodness, is such a sweet thing. It's like, a, it's like treasure hidden in a field. Where have we heard that before, right? It's something precious, something that we give ourselves for, something little, something hidden and discoverable. And then, bang, this water is now wine. This water is now wine. Or to be more specific, the ritual water for washing and purification has now become a celebratory drink. Wow. The thing of the law, of the old covenant, the thing that helped God's people be holy and set apart has become something of celebration, of togetherness, of gathering. That is a rich image in and of itself. Actually, it's something we often miss. We often act as if the water is just neutral. Jesus just found the nearest water source and turned that into wine. But I think it's deliberate. The stone water jars used for purification. Actually, this image of wine and God doing things with wine is really important. It's really important, particularly in um, the Old Testament prophets. Amos talks about there being new wine dripping from the mountains of the day of the Lord. There's this passage in Joel 3, 18. And in that day, right, this is the day of the Lord. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. Actually, this image of God's abundance, of God's wine being poured out, is an image of God's kingdom, of God returning to his people, of God blessing his people. A people in exile, a people crushed, a people looking around going, where has God been in our situation and in our circumstance? We'll be so blessed that wine will pour down from the mountains. There's something in that about the richness of what Jesus is doing, of Jesus saying, actually, This is the return of Zion's God. This is the blessing of the Lord pouring out from the mountains. But actually, in these passages, in this passage in Joel, it's also about judgment for the nations. These are passages about the people around the people of God as well. Jesus is drawing on something richer and bigger than that. These passages speak about justice These passages speak about restoration, redemption, things being made the way that they should be. And when things are made the way that they should be, wine will pour down the mountains because it will be an extravagant feast full of blessing and abundance when God brings his justice and his judgment. Jesus is drawing on some of that imagery, I think. In fact, those images of wine and mountains... I think are really significant, and I think there's a detail we maybe miss in this passage. What's the story immediately after Jesus turning water into wine? I said before how most of the other signs then have a saying after it that explains what the sign was about. After Jesus turns water into wine, what does he do? He goes and he empties the temple. He goes to the mountain and he proclaims judgment. He tries to bring about justice where he sees corruption, on the temple, the mountain of God itself. I actually think the joyousness of the feast and 
the strength of the image of Jesus making a cord of whips and driving out the animal and trying to bring about holiness again in the temple are two images of holiness that are supposed to be one. Two stories that we tell separately that are actually the same story about what Jesus is doing. This new wine from the mountain is a new thing that is also a judgment of the old. It's a judgment of the old because it's been too limited. That set apartness has actually stopped the abundance and the blessing of God overflowing, has stopped God's kingdom expanding beyond and into the nations. And then here we have, here we have the explanation. And it comes from the master of the feast, the the toastmaster, the MC. Everyone serves the good wine first. When people have got drunk, then they bring out the rubbish stuff. Actually, Jesus is saying, what I come to bring you is not retro religion. It's not us looking back to the way things were. It's not, us, it's not a religion of lament for how simple things should be and woe is me and the world is terrible and don't we remember when it was good. Actually, in Jesus, our best days are always to come. Our best days are always to come. The new wine is the good wine. Do you feel like that? Do you extend that grace to yourselves today? Do you know that you're more transformed than you were 10 minutes ago? Two weeks ago? Three years ago? Do you know that God is not just calling you to to strip back and mourn and focus on the things that you have to, to give up and the toughness, maybe, of living out your faith, but actually, God would give you new wine. He would say the best is always to come. Actually, we know throughout Scripture, even when we become an old man like Abraham, still our best years are always ahead of us. That even when we face death itself, like when we read about Paul writing his letters to the early church, still when we face suffering and trial and death itself, we know our best years are always ahead of us. Actually, it's always the new wine that tastes sweeter in the kingdom of God. Often, when we read stories in the Gospel of John, um, some of these stories are unique and are not picked up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this is one of those stories that we don't have in the other Gospels. Yet, we have a parallel saying, don't we? In Matthew 9, Mark 2, Luke 5, Jesus is questioned about fasting. And each time he responds, you don't pour new wine into old wineskins. In fact, in Luke it says, no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. Jesus is saying, actually, um, I think something historical and I think something deep and resonant to us. I think the historical thing is Jesus was saying in his context to the people of Israel, You were waiting for a king to come in the line of David to return you to the kingdom that was. You want a new Solomon to to rule with splendor and make us a powerful force. And God isn't in the business of making empires. Actually, God is doing a new thing. And his wine is going to pour down Mount Zion to the nations. And actually, this covenant is going to find itself wrapped up in this new covenant 
a new beautiful thing where God brings all of humanity to himself, where actually we need six 30-gallon stone jars in order to make sure everyone gets a drink. I think that's part of what Jesus was teaching his people in that day. And that's part of what the early church read, as there were all these different people being bolted on, grafted on into the story of God's people. But actually, God would say to us today, your best years are ahead of you. Actually, in the church sometimes, I think, particularly in the UK, we look back to this mythic Christian past when we had this Christian nation. In charismatic churches, we look back to kind of sometimes to the early 90s and, and events that happened and go, oh, don't we, don't we want a move of the Spirit like that again? Don't we want to be a Christian country like that again? God is always doing a new thing. God is always doing a new thing. The church is never going to be in danger of dying out because it's always, always Jesus is. Jesus is Lord. And he will have the spoils of his victory. Our best days will always be ahead of us. I'm hesitant to do another song with that fuzzy screen. So maybe we just stand up today and maybe we'll sing a bit a cappella. But maybe we'll just call out for God to do a new thing in our hearts today. Actually, maybe you are looking for the old wine. God's Spirit wants to do a new thing in you today. Maybe your heart is an old wineskin. Maybe it feels a bit patchy and stretched and doesn't have the capacity for what God's doing. Maybe you're in a situation where you're in a church or community and actually what is happening right now is pushing you and you feel like you're bursting and uncomfortable and breaking, actually God would want to give you a new heart to put his new wine within. So let's just invite his spirit now.